Well, a few nights back, um, our daughter, Anna, after she had been in bed about an hour, and I got her permission to share this with you, so no, she gave me permission about this. But after she'd been in bed about an hour, she came out of bed, she found me, and as she likes to put it, she said, Daddy, I need a daddy snuggle. I need a daddy snuggle. So we had our few moments of snuggling, then I asked her, you know, what, what was wrong? What was going on? Why was she having trouble sleeping? And she said, Daddy, I had a bad thought. Now, that's a line that she has been using more often lately. Instead of, I had a bad dream, she says, I, I had a bad thought. So after a little investigation, well, you know, what was your bad thought? It turned out that her bad thought was actually that she was frightened by something that was in her room. She was afraid of something that she was seeing, or thought she was seeing, in the dark. How many of you remember laying in bed as a kid, being afraid of the dark? Yeah. Those of you who are not raising your hand, maybe your memory's not working this morning, all right? <laughs> but, but the thing was, we, it wasn't so much that we were afraid of the dark, it's that we were afraid of what might be hiding in the dark. Uh, the unknown, right? That's what drove our fears. And that's what Anna was battling as she came out of her room. There was something that she was seeing in a room that, that in the dark looked menacing and, and threatening. So when Anna came out, said she needed her daddy snuggles and told me that there was something frightening her in her room, what do you think I did? What do you think my response was to Anna? Do you think I sent her back in her room and said, well, go back in there and just watch out for that thing, whatever it is, you know, make sure it doesn't get you. (laughs) Or do you think I said to her, well, you stay here, I'm going to go barricade up your door so we make sure whatever's in there, you know, doesn't get out here. No, that's not what I did. What did I do? We, we went to her room, and we did what? We turned on the light. We turned on the light. And in the light, Anna discovered that what she feared in the dark was nothing more than a pile of blankets. <laughs> Looked menacing in the dark, but you turned the light on, there's nothing really frightening about a pile of blankets. So the light had revealed that there was no reason to fear what seemed so fearful in the dark. The light had revealed that there was no reason to fear what seemed so fearful in the dark. So after that revelation and a few more snuggles, Anna was able to get back in bed, lay her head on the pillow, and thankfully, she fell asleep. Now here's the thing, and I think you know this, Anna's not the only person to ever have that experience, nor are children the only ones to have those experiences. As adults, we find ourselves in those moments when the darkness and the shadows give rise to our fears. And, I, and I'm not simply talking about those moments when you wake up in the middle of the night and you would think you hear something in the kitchen, and it turns out just to be the house settling or you know, the cat got up on the counter. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is that sometimes as the children of God, we, we wrestle as we live in this world where there are, are shadows and darkness and the unknown. We wrestle with fear of those things, don't we? We wrestle with fear of those things. Just, just like Anna... We have those moments when the unknown gives rise to our fears. Let me quickly give you some examples of this, things that have been very obvious to me the last couple of weeks. As several of you know, a couple of weeks ago, I ended up in the emergency room. Real fun adventure that was. And I was there because I and and the doctor who had seen me at the clinic thought I might be having a heart attack. Thankfully, I wasn't. But in that moment, those moments when they're hooking up the EKG to you, and things don't feel right in your chest, you find some very similar feelings to that of a child in their room afraid of the dark. You know, you're having all those questions, right? What's going on with my heart? What's going to happen to me? And then as quick as those questions come in, the next ones, well, what might happen to my family? What might happen to our church? And as those thoughts go racing through your mind, it's easy to find yourself becoming fearful of the unknown, fearful of what's hiding in the dark. That was me a couple of weeks ago. Last Tuesday, Chip and Carrie, I went through something similar. Um, as I said, Carrie's 27 weeks pregnant. 40 is full term. So uh, you do the math. She's been having these serious health complications. Um, and it was getting to the point, you know, it's serious. It could have taken both her life and the baby's life. And the doctors, they were trying everything they could do. Put her on strict bed rest, you know, take it easy, medication, all these things. And last Tuesday, I said, none of this is working. So we're going to deliver the baby. And we think that's the best way to save both Carrie's life and the baby's life. As they went into that surgery, were there 
unknowns in that moment. As wonderful as modern medicine is, there were a lot of unknowns going into that moment. Ladies, take a moment and just just think about being in Carrie's place as they were wheeling her back to surgery. Imagine going back there, you know, thinking about your 27-week-old little baby. What questions might be going through your mind? What's going to happen to my baby? And on top of that, you know, what's going to happen to me? I mean, they were struggling to get Carrie's blood pressure down. That's not a good thing to be happening when you're going in for a surgical procedure. Put yourself in her shoes. Fears of the unknown? Or put yourself in our brother Chip's shoes. Guys, think about being in those shoes. Imagine watching as they take your wife away to prepare her for emergency surgery, and you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen to her. You don't know what's going to happen to your little baby girl. I was thinking about you this week a lot, brother. As men, we like to be in control. Amen? Amen. We like to be in control. And when everything's out of control, what do we want to do? We're going to jump in and we're going to fix it. We're going to save the day. But Chip, in that moment, could you do any of that? No. No control. He couldn't come in and save the day. All he could do was be there. And that makes us feel what? Helpless and afraid. I don't want to say anything about where you're at, brother, but I think for all of us guys, in those moments, moments like that, the fear in a grown man is as palpable as it was for Anna running out of that room going to find her daddy to get a daddy snuggle. Maybe even more so. So, we find ourselves in those moments afraid, right? Because what's hiding in the dark? Afraid of the unknown. That was Tuesday. The day after the Montagues faced that, our entire country found itself in a very fear-inducing situation. Everybody knows, I'm sure you've all seen it on the news, but we witnessed another act of senseless, senseless violence. A couple in California. Brutally murdered 14 people, injured 21 others, and then died in the streets in a gun battle with the police. And as those news reports began to roll in, they didn't just bring the shock of what had happened. They also brought a lot of questions, didn't they? Questions that gave rise to fear. All across social media, across the television, in conversations, all around you, you heard people saying, what? Were these murderers terrorists? Was this an ISIS attack inside the United States? Could this have happened where we live? Could this have happened where you work? With all those questions, with, with the shadows of the unknown and the shocking, it's really easy to find ourselves responding how? With fear. And in despair. That's often what the the dark shadows bring. Just like a child who's afraid of the dark. Not because of the darkness itself, but because of what is hiding in the dark. We too can find ourselves afraid of the unknown. Afraid of what is hiding in those dark and difficult moments of life. What's going on with my heart? What's going to happen with our family? What's going to happen with our country? All the unknown can give rise to fear. But here's what I want you to understand this morning. The solution for us and for our fears is the same as it was for Anna and for hers. We need to see things in the light. We need to see things in the light. We need to turn the light on. We don't need to go barricade the door. We don't need to go back into the dark room and say, well, just try to grin and bear it. We need to turn the light on. We need to see the things that give rise to our fears, but see them in the light. And that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to see the reality of the things that we fear. I want us to see them in the light, in the light. And in order to do that, we're going to return to our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. So take your Bibles and turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. As as you're turning there this morning, let me take just a moment and remind you, of some of the darkness 
and the shadows in Colossae. Some of the, the fears, the people who received this letter, some of the fears that they were wrestling with in their life. As I've shared before, this letter, the, the book of Colossians, a letter from the Apostle Paul to a lo- young church in Colossae. And many in that young church had come out of a lifestyle uh, of paganism, a lifestyle of, of gross and perverse idolatry. Many of them had, had grown up trying to please fearful and angry gods. They grew up believing that you kept such gods off your back, so to speak, by jumping through just the right hoops or by keeping just the right traditions or by embracing mystical and esoteric experiences through which you gave yourself in communion with these gods. They had grown up in a religion of fear. But then, praise God, they heard the gospel of grace. They heard the gospel of Christ Jesus. And in that, they, they found the love and the grace of God. They came to know the God who is holy and just and rightly to be feared, but instead of wrath, has shown us what? Grace, mercy. They came to know a God who instead of calling them to jump through all the right hoops or keep just the right traditions, gave them salvation freely as a gift. In the gospel, they experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But then along had come other teachers, false teachers. And those teachers had preyed upon the fears of the Colossians. Uh, They encouraged some in this young church to add the old ways back in to their new Christianity. They encouraged them to add back in, jumping through just the right hoops. They encouraged them to add back in, keeping just the right traditions. They encouraged them to go back to the old, mystical, esoteric experiences that used to be so commonplace in their paganism. And here's the thing. Some in that church did. They did add those old things back in. And they added those old ways back in because they were afraid. They were afraid of what might happen if they don't. What might happen if we don't? You see, they had Christ, but they were afraid, what? That he might not be enough. They're afraid that he might not be enough. They're afraid of what might be. They're afraid of what they couldn't see. And to those struggling folks, Paul writes this letter. But here's the thing. He doesn't tell them, go and barricade the door against all those things you're afraid of. And he doesn't tell them, just try to ignore your fears and carry on with life. No, instead, you know what he does? He turns on the light. He turns on the light. He shines the light of who Christ is. He shines the light of Christ upon the fears of the Colossians. He calls them to see the things that they're so afraid of in the light of Christ. And a key way in which he does this, maybe even the heart of the letter itself, is found in Paul's description of Christ recorded for us in verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1. And here, verses 15 to 20, Paul shows the Colossians... And this isn't me. This is from commentator F.F. Bruce. I read this this week and I love it. But he shows the Colossians that for those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors. For those who have been redeemed by Christ, Bruce says, the universe has no ultimate terrors for they can know that their redeemer is also creator, ruler, and goal of all. He's creator, ruler, and goal of all. And that's what Paul's showing the Colossians. He shows them that they don't need to be afraid because of who their Jesus is. Yes, because of who their Jesus is. So let's look at Paul's description now of Christ. Let's look at who who he says Jesus is, who he tells these Colossians that Jesus is. Starting in verse 15, Paul, speaking of Christ, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, And for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross awesome verses aren't those as we've been working through these verses we've been calling this the the resume of christ the resume of christ and 
And in this resume, Paul gives us this just awesome picture uh, of the preeminence, the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Christ over all things. Here he shows us that the Christ is both exalted over the created universe and over the work of redeeming the created universe. He shows us that Christ is preeminent, as we've been saying, over original creation and new creation. He is the Christ who stands above it all, above everything. But one of the things I've been wanting you to grab a hold of as we work through this resume is that Paul isn't giving us this resume just to fill our heads with more facts. You know, this isn't here just an exercise to satisfy our curiosities, right? This isn't here just, oh, well, here's more information. Now, Now I can write up my doctrinal statement better. That's not what this is here for. This is here so that we might be changed by it. That we might be changed by it. This is here so that we can view ourselves and our world, our hopes and our fears, our, our, our joys and our trials, that we can view everything in the light of who Christ is. Everything in view of the light of who Christ is. This resume is Paul turning on the light so we can see things properly. And the first thing here that Paul wants us to see properly is the relationship between Christ and the whole created universe. That's where he focuses on the first half of, of this resume, verses 15 to 17. And he begins, as we've been looking at, he begins by showing us Christ as the revealer of God to creation. The revealer of God to creation. He tells the Colossians that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And as we looked at two weeks ago, that means that Christ is the revelation. He is the ultimate revelation of the otherwise unknowable, invisible God. So that means if you truly want to know God, who do you need to look to? Christ. There's only one way. If you truly want to know God, there's only one way through Christ. Jesus himself told us this, didn't he? John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through these five means. No. What does he say? Except through me. No one. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. So you are not going to know God. You are not going to truly know God except through Jesus Christ. Boy, that sounds very dogmatic in our pluralistic culture. But it's the truth. And to tell people something else is to do what? It's to lie to them. Might make them feel nice for a few moments. But we don't care about their eternal souls if we're going to say, well, I don't want to be dogmatic. Might be this way, might be that way. No. If you want to know God, it's only going to happen through Jesus Christ. Only through Christ. He is the revealer of God to creation. The revealer. The revelation. But that, the image of the invisible God, as amazing as that statement is, that's only Paul's opening salvo in this uh, resume. He, He next shows us Christ, as we've been talking about, Christ as the master of the house. The house that is all creation. Christ is the master of the house. You see, Christ doesn't simply reveal God to creation. He also reigns and rules over all creation. He's the master over all creation. He's the one who Paul describes here, look at verse 15, as the firstborn of all creation. And as we looked at last Sunday, that that term firstborn, that's not talking about birth order. That's not somehow teaching that Christ had had you know, a beginning that God the Son is a created being, Paul, Paul is showing us here who Christ is in relationship to creation. He's, he's showing us the position that Christ holds over all creation. He holds the position like, like the firstborn had in a household. We were talking about this this morning. I was chatting with our little Anna Banana, seven years old, and we were talking about this, and I was talking about this title, and she goes, well, but... But God the Son, I mean, Jesus is God, so he wasn't, he didn't have a beginning. This title firstborn, I said, yeah, it's, it's a metaphor, it's a picture, it's saying that he's like a firstborn in a household. And in that ancient culture, the firstborn in the household was over everything. In, in the days of Paul writing this letter and the Colossians reading this letter, the firstborn had the place of preeminence. They were the heir of everything in that household. When dad died, it all came to them. They were the heir of everything. Everything was defined by its relationship to the firstborn. 
Who are you? Well, I'm part of that household. I'm related into that person. I'm that person's servant or child. Everything was defined by its relationship to the firstborn. And so that's what Paul's talking about here in this picture of Christ. Christ is the firstborn. He holds this place of preeminence over the whole universe. He's the chief heir of the entire universe. He's the center of it. He's the one from whom everything else in the universe gets its identity. That's what Paul means by this title of firstborn. He is the preeminent one over all creation. And in order to help us understand this title, Paul, as you look at the text there, verses 16 and 17, he attaches a series of explanatory phrases to this title. Verses 16 and 17 are really Paul's exposition of this title. He's showing us the how and the why that Christ holds this position of preeminence. And he begins by telling us that everything in the universe is created in reference to Christ. He tells us that Christ is the centerpiece of the entire universe. In verse 16, Paul says literally, for in him, some of your translations read by him, but literally it is for in him, in Christ, all things were created. So what that means is that everything in the entire universe finds its reference point where? In Christ. In Christ. That means that The cornerstone of the entire universe, as we looked at last week, is Christ. Everything's lined up with Christ. He's the reference point, the centerpiece of the entire created universe. And you look at the text here, nothing is excluded from this. Take a moment and just look at verses 16 and 17. Just look at it. Notice how many times Paul says, all things. Take a moment and count those in your Bible. How many times does he say, all things? Verses 16 and 17, how many times? Yeah, four. For in him all things were created. Then towards the end of that verse, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Four times, two verses. Now, as I've said in the past, the Bible doesn't repeat itself because God couldn't come up with anything else to say. Right? It's repeated for the sake of emphasis. It's repeated for the sake of emphasis. So Paul is driving home this point. Christ's supremacy over everything. Everything. Like my heart. Like a 27-week-old baby. Like our country. On the good days and the bad. He's over all of it. He is the center of all of it. Just in case we're wondering, though, What does he really mean by all things? I mean, you just said heart, baby, country. Does he really mean all of that, Ryan? Paul spells it out for us in verse 16, doesn't he? Look at what he says. For in him all things were created. Well, but what do you mean, Paul, by all things? Well, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Oh, that's what you mean. All things. You see, all things mean things in every location, whether that's in the heavens or on the earth. All things means every type of created thing, whether those are the physical things that you can see with your eyeballs or the spiritual things that you can't. All things means every kind of authority, whether you're talking about earthly thrones or spiritual dominions, whether you're talking about countries or angelic powers. Christ is the master over all of it. Over all of it. He's the master of over all of it. All of it. All, everything in the entire, there's not one corner, one little square. That one thing that was made, that wasn't made in reference to Christ. He's the center of all of it. He's the centerpiece. But more than just the centerpiece, He stands as Lord over all creation because as the end of verse 16 makes clear, Christ made it all. He made it all. Paul says, all things were created, what? Through him. Through him. Through Christ. Now, what Paul tells us here, that, that all things were created through Christ, this is a truth as you read through the New Testament, you find it repeated throughout the New Testament. Let me give you a couple other verses that that teach us. And you can turn to those verses if you want, or you can just listen. But the first one, we find it over in John's gospel, in the first chapter. John opens that book. You remember, 
opens this gospel by describing the Son as, what term does he use, remember? The, the Word. He describes the Son as the Word. And he says, and this is the way the gospel opens, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then John writes this, all things, that, all things were made through him, so through the Word. And he says, without him was not anything made that was made. So that includes what? <laughs> yeah, everything. John says the entire created universe was made through him, through the Word. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul describes it this way. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Paul says, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord. Now, now don't hear that as a, a lesser title. Lord in the New Testament is another title for deity, okay? So one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom are all things. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul says everything is from the Father, but it exists it was made through the Son. And the author of Hebrews, he tells us something similar. This is from the opening of that book. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The author says, Long ago, <coughs> long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he, and he's speaking here of God the Father. How do I know that? Well, listen to what he says. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So he's talking about God the Father. He says, He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he, God the Father, created the world. So the Father created the world, the entire universe, through the Son. And I think the best way to understand this relationship, this relationship between the Father and the Son in creating, is to see it as the Father is the sovereign architect over all creation. Everything is from him. Just like in redemption, we talked about this this last summer in our Trinity study. Just like in redemption, the father planned and purposed it all. He's the sovereign architect over it all. But creation was accomplished just like redemption through the work of the son. It was accomplished through the work of the son. The son is, as one commentator put it, the agent of creation. Another scholar described it this way, and I like this. The son is the master workman. Of creation. He's the master workman. He's the one who fashioned it. He's the one who made it. He's the one who built it. He's the one, I hesitate a little bit to use this because I don't want to get the wrong idea, but he was the one who was hands on, so to speak. He was the one who fashioned. He, he hung the stars in the heavens. He raised the mountains. He, he filled the oceans. He crafted man and then the woman. It was all made through him. All of it. All of it. And that speaks to the mind boggling ability of Christ. As I've been saying the last few weeks as we've been working through this, when we talk about Jesus, we're not simply talking about a carpenter from Nazareth. We're not simply talking about a, a teacher from Galilee. We're not simply talking about a rejected and crucified Messiah. I think that might have been part of the problem there in Colossae. They were, they were suffering from a little Christ problem. You know what I mean? Uh, they, were, they were failing to see how truly amazing he was. Maybe they were falling into that. Well, he's just a teacher from Galilee or, or he's just this crucified and rejected Messiah. This little Christ. But here's the thing. We don't have a little Christ, amen? We don't have a little Christ. That's what Paul is showing us. We have the Christ who made everything in the entire universe. And the Colossians needed to understand that. And guess what? So do we. So do we. You see, just like the Colossians, when our fears come, we can, we can fall into that thinking we have a little Christ. Amen? We can start to think that. We can start to doubt that he has the ability to handle what's happening in our life. Can I get an amen on that one? Amen. We've been there, right? We can find ourselves thinking things like, oh, I don't know. What's going to happen to me? What's going on with my heart? What if something does happen? What will become of my family? What will become of our church? I mean, those are the thoughts that go through your head. And, and what does that say when those thoughts come and then the fears follow right after them? 
What was Ryan suffering from as he finds himself in that moment? Little Christ, right? Because ultimately, who is keeping my family? Christ. Today, tomorrow, and all the way through. Who is keeping our church? Let's say hear it again. Who's keeping our church? Christ. So it's not dependent on a person or people. Amen? It's the church of Christ. But we have these situations where we start to freak out, and it shows that we're suffering from this. He made the entire universe. He made our bodies. He made my heart. I mean, he's made the entire world. So do you think these other things that we freak out about, he can't handle those? Again, do you understand what Paul is saying to us here? Christ is more than enough. He has more than enough ability to sustain us. Amen? He has more than enough ability to sustain those that we love. Amen? Parents, do you ever wrestle with that? Thinking about your kids. And you want to just climb in there and make sure everything is perfect because you don't want anything to happen to them. Because you're trying to be, I'm trying to be the one to sustain them. But Christ has more than enough ability to sustain them. Amen? He has more than enough ability to sustain his people. Amen? There are times, and some of you who've, we'll just say you're the more mature saints here. We won't say you're old. But those who've been around for a while, you've watched things happen in our country and you've watched things happen to the church, churches. And it can be discouraging, right? And you can start to have these fears and this despair. Is Christ enough, more than enough to sustain his church? He'll keep his church. We need to be faithful, not calling us to apathy. (laughs) But he's more than enough. He's more than enough to sustain his people. And he's more than enough to bring all of those things that are happening in the universe. Even the ugly things. Like what happened at that Christmas party in California. He has more than enough ability to bring all of those things to a good and right goal. You see, evil will not win. Because that's not the purpose of the universe. That's not the purpose of the universe. Paul tells us the purpose of the universe in the very next preposition that he uses. Paul says what? All things were created through Christ, through him, and what's the purpose of the universe? For him. Everything is here, the entire created universe, for Christ. He's the goal of all of it. It's all here for his glory. That's the purpose of the entire universe. Again, just like in that that ancient household, it all existed there for the firstborn son. And that's the reality of the entire created universe. There, there isn't one thing that's, that's been made, one thing that exists that isn't for him. Think about it this way. Every plant, every flower, every bird in the sky, every fish in the sea, it all has a label on it that says, for Christ. All the mountains, all the oceans, all the, the meadows, the deserts, all for Christ. All for Christ. The sun, the moon, the comets, the planets, all for Christ. Every person walking around on this planet breathing air. Every person who's ever taken a breath on this planet. And even those unborn children who never had a chance to take a breath. All for Christ. All for Christ. It all belongs to him. And his glory is the goal of all of it. But here's the thing. Sometimes in the darkness and the trials, we can start to doubt that. That it's all going to work for his glory. We can start to doubt that. Sometimes when things happen um, that are difficult um, or evil, we can begin to doubt That there is a good purpose for everything in the universe. We can start to doubt, is Christ really over all of it? Is it all really working for the purpose of his glory? Anybody ever found yourself in that spot? Maybe it's because of some quote-unquote tragic headline that you read. Or maybe because something happened in your own life. Start to doubt. 
Is there really a good purpose to all these things? But here's the thing. When those doubts come, here's what we need to realize, brothers and sisters. We've been given the paradigm that should chase away all those doubts. We've been given the light that, in which we should see all of those dark moments in our lives. And that paradigm, that light, is referenced by Paul down in verses 19 and 20. Look down in the text. Verses 19 and 20. Paul says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, speaking of the incarnation, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, reconciling the universe. How? Yeah. By uh, by a happy event? By a comfortable event? By the blood of the cross. Here what Paul is showing us is the darkest moment in the history of the universe. What was the darkest moment in the history of the universe? It was not the fall. The darkest moment in the history of the universe was the suffering and death of the firstborn. It was the suffering and death of God incarnate. It was the darkest moment in human history. But that was also the moment that was used for the greatest good in human history. They're on the cross. Think about this. They're on the cross. Through what appeared to be so dark, so awful, so horrible, God was doing what? He was working for good. He was working for good. He was working for the glory of Christ. He was working for the good of God's people. He was working for the reconciliation of the universe. That was the plan. That was the purpose. Even in the darkest moment of human history, it was for the greatest good in human history. So... When dark moments come into our lives and it leads us to doubt, there is a good purpose that it's all for the glory of Christ, that it's all for the good of his people. Brothers and sisters, where do we need to look? What's the paradigm over which we need to put over all those moments? The cross. It's the cross. We need to look to the cross. There we find the paradigm to help us see rightly every dark moment, every dark moment just like everything else in the universe, will ultimately be for good because it's all, what? For Christ. It's all for Christ. Evil will not triumph because that's not the purpose of the universe. It's not the purpose of the universe. The entire universe, everything in it, has a good and right purpose. It's all here for him, for the firstborn. Verse 17, Paul continues teaching us about Christ. the firstborn, by telling us that he is also before all things. He's before all things. Here we find another of Paul's descriptive prepositions for Christ. Riley is learning prepositions in school. So I was showing her, look at all these prepositions, how each one is helping us to understand more about Jesus. So here we find another one. He is what? Before all things. There's the preposition. And by that preposition, Paul is first emphasizing Christ's pre-existence, that little word, that little preposition, carries the powerful point of the eternality of Christ. Before there was anything else in the universe, what? Christ existed. Christ existed. I think you know this, but let me just remind you, Jesus himself taught this truth about himself. Uh, over in John eight fifty eight, Jesus used this truth to, to overwhelm his Jewish opponents and to expose their hearts. Remember there in chapter 8 of John They're arguing with Jesus, and and in the midst of their rejection of Christ and their claims to be faithful to their father Abraham, Jesus says this to them. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, Jesus said. He saw it and was glad. To which the Jews who were arguing with him replied, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Come on. That's what they're saying. And then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus made the reality of his eternal existence abundantly clear. Again, with just a little word, right? Not even I was, I was before Abraham. I am. I have existed eternally. And those listening to him that day understood exactly what he was getting at. John goes on to tell us, the very next verse, they picked up stones throw at him because they saw him as a blasphemer. They knew that God alone is eternal. But they just heard Jesus make that claim about himself. That wasn't the only time he made that claim. Uh, Over in John 17, 
we see him saying this again. There in the midst of the high priestly prayer, that beautiful prayer that we have recorded for us in John 17. There in verse 5, he says this. He's praying to the Father. He says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glorify me with the, in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus makes it clear. Before there was anything else that was made, he existed. And he existed in this eternal relationship of glory with his Father. Remember, we talked about that this last summer in our Trinity study. That's the eternal reality of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit existing in this eternal relationship of glory, this eternal relationship of love and joy and perfection and delight in one another. And and that's the reality that, that Paul is referencing here when he says that Christ is before all things. Christ eternally existed. But I don't think Paul is just referencing the eternality of Christ with this preposition. You see, Paul has written this little phrase a little differently than he has the others. I won't go into all the details, but in the Greek, this phrase is emphatic. It reads this way. He himself is before all things. And scholars believe that Paul added that emphasis in order to show that he's not just speaking about Christ before all things in a sense of time, but he's also teaching that Christ is before all things in a sense of rank. He is positionally before all things. In other words, there's nothing in the universe that outranks him. There's no true rival in all the universe to his lordship. He is the transcendent lord of the universe. He is outside of it in time and above it in rank. This little phrase, this little word before, is a powerful way of showing us that God the Son isn't part of the created world. He's transcendent. He transcends it. And that's good news. That's good news. Sometimes when people talk about the transcendence of God, that God is above and exists outside of his creation, people don't hear that as good news because it can make God feel distant or disconnected. It seems kind of like bad news. God is far from us. But I think that misunderstands the blessing and the beauty of God's transcendence. Because God, because Christ our Savior is transcendent, because he is before all things, he's a Savior who won't be overcome. He's a savior who won't be overcome. You see, there's nothing in the entire universe that is too big for him that is going to entangle him and pull him down because he transcends it all. So he is able to save us and sustain us and not be overcome in the process. Let me give you a picture to help you understand what I'm talking about. One of the difficulties of trying to save somebody who is drowning is you have to do what? To go get out in the water with them, right? You have to go immerse yourself in the water. And as you do that, you run the risk of being overcome just like they are, right? They grab onto you and pull you down or you get sucked out in a riptide. So once you leave that place of transcendence on the beach and immerse yourself out in the water, you run the risk of being overcome by that situation. You don't transcend the situation, you're immersed in it. But, but that's not the reality of Christ. Although he did take upon himself our humanity and immerse himself in our reality, he never became just a creature. He never became just a creature. He never stopped being the sovereign, transcendent Lord of the universe. So even in death, even when it looked like, you know, the waves had overcome him and our our sin had pulled him down with us, he was never defeated. And on the third day, the empty tomb declared that, right? Showed us. He he wasn't simply a human Messiah. He was, he is the sovereign, transcendent Lord of all. So even death itself couldn't hold on to him because he's the Lord. Do you understand the point? Even death itself couldn't hold on to him and he's the one who holds on to us. Isn't that awesome? You see what a blessing it is that he is really Lord over all, that he is before all things? What what an encouraging truth to know that our Lord, our Redeemer, our Savior who loves us is before all things so that nothing, nothing in the entire universe, nothing that comes into your life, nothing that comes into my life will overcome him. Nothing's going to overcome him. And we're with him. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that glorious? Starting to see things in the light now? 
One last preposition to help us see things in the light. Verse 17. Paul says, not only is Christ before all things, but in him all things hold together. Christ is the great sustainer of the entire created universe. Everything is upheld, as the author of Hebrews says, by the word of his power. It's, It's really neat here what Paul's doing. After telling us of the transcendence of Christ, he's before all things, Paul now shows us the imminence of Christ. Everything in the entire universe is touched. It's held together by Christ. As one commentator put it, and I really like this, he said, what holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person. What holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person. The resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. It's Christ who keeps it all going. Another commentator put it this way. He writes, The so-called laws of nature have no independent existence. They are an expression of Christ's will. And because he delights in order and not confusion, it's possible to speak of them as laws. Christ keeps it all going. He holds it all together. But as I was thinking about this truth, I kept coming back to the idea of his grace. Every atom, every planet, every heart beating, it's all sustained by him. And that's a testimony to his grace because brothers and sisters, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Let's all be honest. We've all rebelled against his sovereignty. Amen? Let's just confess. We've all rebelled against his sovereignty. We've all tried to pull away from the purpose for which everything in the universe was created. It's all here for who? Yeah, we're not the center of the universe. Amen? He is. But we've all tried to pull away from this. All of us have and continue to have those moments in our life when we say, I don't want to do what you want me to do. I want to do what I want to do. I don't need you. Don't tell me what to do. I don't need you. Maybe you didn't vocalize that this last week. But sometimes it's there in our actions, isn't it? I don't need you. And as we look at this, he he sustains the whole universe. How foolish of us to say, I don't need you. Why are we still here in this moment? Drawing breath, hearts beating, because Christ has willed it. And it's all his grace. That's what I want to understand. It's all his grace. Every moment that he keeps us here, every moment that he gives this world one more day, as vile as it has become, it's all a testimony. To his grace. None of us deserve it. Yet he gives it anyways. He gives it anyways. That's who he is. He is the center. The creator. The goal. The transcendent Lord. And the gracious sustainer of the entire universe. And by God's grace and his mercy. The one who is all those things. Is also our savior. Our Jesus. Our redeemer. So what have we to fear? Let me again read you that quote from Bruce. He writes, For those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors. For they can know that their Redeemer is also creator, ruler, and goal of all. What have we to fear? When I think about what's going on with my heart, and those fears start to rise up. You know, what might happen? What might happen to my family? What might happen to our church? I need to keep reminding myself what? It's all in his hands, right? It's all in the Savior's hands. And guess what? He's got it. Amen? He's got it. And and, and again, that doesn't lead us to apathy. That doesn't lead us to neglect our responsibility. But it should lead us to the same place that turning the lights on led Anna. She put her head on her pillow and restfully went to sleep. And it should lead you and me to that same place. We're faithful. We pursue what God's called us to do. And we rest in Christ. Amen? We rest in Christ. Put our head on the pillow and we rest. And so as we think about Chip and Carrie and little baby Ada going forward, we need to rest knowing that that little baby girl is in his hands. Amen? And just like everything else in the universe, her life has a good and glorious purpose. 
Already, people have seen the glory of Christ through her. People have been praising God for what he has done in her life. Seen the glory of God through her. And brother, I've seen it through you. I've seen it through Carrie this last week. The glory of Christ as he sustained you guys and, and kept you in this. And, and that, brothers and sisters, that's the way we need to look at the world around us. Even the moments of darkness and shadows are unknown. We don't need to be afraid. We're Christians, amen? We shouldn't be the people who are always panicking. We're Christians. We don't need to be afraid or despairing. Sometimes, again, as Christians, we walk around like everything's falling to pieces. You meet a Christian and they'll tell you, here's 180 things that are wrong this week, you know? And I fall prey into that. We become despairing people. We're Christians. We have Christ, right? Why are we despairing? We don't need to be afraid and despairing. We simply need to turn on the light and see the realities of life in light of the reality of Christ. Again, I want to close with that quote. For those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors, for they can know that their Redeemer is also creator, ruler, and goal of all. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for giving us the word. Thank you for allowing what happened there in Colossae and the struggles. And Paul, all those years ago, to have Epaphras come visit him, tell him about what's going on in the church, write this letter, and put in this glorious description of who you are. And give it, not not just for them there in Colossae, but give it to your church so that we can have the light of who you are and see our lives in the reality of that light. And so I pray that that you would help us to do that. I know we can talk about these things, but we, we desperately need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to come and Help us grab hold of these things and see how they land in our lives. I pray that that the Spirit would be doing that in my heart and the hearts of all who are here. That we would really see the universe in the light of Christ. Lord Jesus, what, what a gift to know that you are our Redeemer. That you've promised you're not going to leave us or forsake us. You're with us. And we can rest in you. I pray this week, as we go through this week, and again, as the trials come, by your Spirit, you keep drawing us back to this passage. You keep drawing us back to these truths. You keep reminding us, this is who you are. And we are yours. What a blessing, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this time. Bless all who are gathered here. These things we pray in your name. Amen.